Let me invite you now to open your Bible to the book of Galatians. We'll read a passage from Galatians and then one from Philippians. As today we look at a continuing series we're doing on Gospel Reset, uh, considering the reality that it's easy for us to lose the impact and shaping power of the Gospel upon our lives by turning to other things to fill the void. And so we're emphasizing again sort of the first things in terms of gospel living and what is often called gospel centrality. One verse that you can easily read over rapidly and not really think about in depth is Galatians 2.20. And I think it says a whole lot more than any of us will ever be able to fathom. But hear now the word of the Lord as we read from Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I, that is Paul, have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Turn also to Philippians chapter 3 and let's begin reading at verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth Of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you address us clearly in the scriptures regarding the nature of our life and what spiritual experience is as you define it. We do pray today that you would grant to us much of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that he would take your word 
and work it in us that he would show us the beauty, glory, attractiveness, and suitability of Jesus Christ for our souls, that he will create in all of us a hunger and thirsting for righteousness, that he would work in us in such a way that we truly could be said of us that we are poor in spirit and meek before you and merciful to others. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you want to look in the front of your bulletin, the opening salvo or statement is printed there for you, and I'm just going to read it, uh, opening the message, because I think it's a really good summary by Jonathan Cruz. And it says the following, Who am I, and I stick to the end of that, really, who am I? What is your re initial reaction to that question? You are the person you spend the most time with and think of most often. But can you define yourself? In actuality, we are defining ourselves all the time through the decisions we make, the actions we take, in the ways we spend our time, and the people we choose to spend it with, and by what we consider to be most meaningful and fulfilling in life. There are ways in which we implicitly answer the question, who am I? But now let me make it explicit. Let's bring it out from the recesses of our hearts and minds and shed, shed some light on it. How would you answer what gets to the core of who you are as an individual? What is it that makes you, you? And so today we're going to talk about identity, Christian identity, how the gospel shapes, creates, and empowers our understanding and illumines our understanding of identity. As we think about identity and we think about answering those questions, there are a number of ways we may go. Some of us may answer it in terms to relationships we have with others. We look at identity as a relational concept. That is, I'm a parent or I'm a spouse or I'm an employer or an employee. Uh, we might base it on our personality. I'm funny, or I'm smart, or I'm a firstborn neurotic, or I'm uptight. Many of us likely think of our identity in terms of our career or calling or vocation. Immediately when we hear a question like that, we would say something like, I'm a lawyer, or I'm a dental hygienist, or I'm a freelance photographer, or I'm an artist, or I'm an administrative assistant, or I'm a dishwasher at the local diner, or I'm an Uber driver, or Lyft, giving equal time. Maybe we think of our hobbies, like I'm a cyclist, or I'm into woodworking, or I'm a seamstress, or maybe we base it on personal questions, uh, personal backgrounds, things like I'm a posy, or I'm Canadian, or I'm from the USA. Or maybe we think of certain groups we affiliate with, like I'm a feminist, or I'm a Republican, or I'm a Democrat, or I'm an independent, or I'm a PETA activist. Or the answer might be influenced by achievements that we have accomplished in life. I'm an award-winning author, or I'm a championship athlete, or I'm a celebrated musician. Other people's first thought might be in a different direction. Some people look at life as the glass half empty. They may say, 
When I think about who I am, um, I would think about it in this way. I think about my lack of achievement in life or I think about perceived failures or shortcomings in life. Maybe I'm like two or three times divorced. I'm unattractive. I'm overweight. I'm awkward. I'm unpopular. And I don't have any friends. Really, I'm a nobody and a loser. That's how some people think about the issue of identity. But there's more to go, more. What, what comes to your mind, our initial reaction to the question is very telling. It often reveals something incredibly personal about us, what's really going on underneath everything, whether we like it or not. It tells us what we think is the controlling aspect of our existence, the purpose of our lives. Even if something that we can't express openly or share with others, Ultimately, the answer to this question reveals what we believe is our identity. In 2015, after a long, years-long cultural debate, the Supreme Court case Obergfell versus Hodges spoke the definitive word on legally constituting same-sex marital unions in the United States. Interestingly, Justice Anthony Kennedy opened his majority report in terms that he spoke more than just about gay rights with a statement indicative of the spirit and ethos of our modern age. The Constitution promises liberty to all within its reach, a liberty that includes certain specific rights that allow people within a lawful realm to define and express their identity. Hmm. That's an interesting ruling. That is, the Constitution promises liberty to all within its reach, a liberty that includes the specific rights that allow people within a lawful realm to define and express their identity. In essence, Kennedy was echoing himself from another opinion years earlier. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence. You know what? I hope we have all woken up, not in the woke sense of the word, but uh, woken up to what's going on and has been going on in our culture. We've been living on borrowed capital for a long time, and what I mean by borrowed capital is the Judeo-Christian ethic and ethos that once shaped the foundations and institutions of our country is gone. It's over. And it's showing up all over. And it's showing us that once we depart from what God has established as true in our word, and every man is for himself autonomously deciding and choosing and creating who we really are in essence, we find ourselves in the mess we is in. And it is a terrible mess. It is an unbelievable mess. And we're going to see the mess get messier. We're going to be living in post-Christendom. That is the time after which any influence of Christianity 
uh, upon our culture is limited except for a very small number of people who actually seriously engage with Scripture and, and are a part of a living, active, real church. And so we're seeing it right before our very eyes. We're seeing everything being redefined. Um, what is it the book of Judges has as its refrain? Uh, God is not acknowledged and people do what is right in their own eyes. And if you read the book of Judges in the Old Testament, it's a disaster everywhere. Some horrible things happen. And so, with these words, Justice Kennedy had codified or codified the thought of today's average American, there's nothing more important than answering that question, who am I? We are important. We are taught, indoctrinated may be a better word, to believe that all things are meant to serve our attempt to discover and live out our identity. The ultimate object of life is to find satisfaction and fulfillment in our self-expression, usually with the ultimate authority being feelings and emotions, not rational, logical propositions, but rather how I feel. It can't be wrong if it feels so right. That is the mantra of our culture. In recent years, societies around the globe have become increasingly individualistic. We live in an age of selfies and a you-do-you mentality, a time when identity was recently voted the word of the year. A person's identity or their particular mode of self-expression is sacred to our current context. There is nothing more important in our society, as they say, than allowing people to identify themselves in whatever way they see fit. As a current cultural construct, this is where we are. And then we can speak of something called the identity gospel. This is not just the world's problem. The church is not immune to promoting this kind of ideology either. You know, churches de-emphasize or all, all but omit talk about sin because people feel much more comfortable being told God wants them to be happy being themselves. The false health, wealth, and prosperity gospel of the past several decades is giving way to what we might call a false identity gospel. This false gospel teaches, it's not a gospel at all, but it teaches that God simply wants you to be content with who you are as you define it and as you feel it to be in your social circles, in your sexuality, in your gender expression, in whatever. As long as you are being true to yourself, the ultimate, although it says nothing about self-deception, you're being true to God. You know, life is not a Disney movie. Follow your heart is not good advice if you believe the Bible at all. But in our world, Scripture gets twisted or tossed to ensure that people feel no pressure to conform to any kind of morality or norm that is uh, transcendent of any one cultural expression, people no longer see ethics or morality as transcendent uh, norms for all people, all cultures, all time, all places. Now it's socially constructed. 
And that's where the meaning comes from. This is the world we live in. You know that. I'm not informing most of you of anything you don't already see or sense. And so, the false gospel preachers preach that man's chief end is to glorify myself and enjoy myself forever. How fascinating it is then to compare this trend of 21st century and in particular Justice Kennedy's words that at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence. With the opening of the 1563 Heidelberg Catechism, the first question the Catechism asks is what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer Listen carefully. That I am not my own. I am not my own. That's astounding, isn't it? This catechism was a theological document commissioned by the ruler of a German province and would go on to be learned and loved by many European Christians for centuries to come. And I know that's speaking of dead white men that everybody hates. Even, de even white men hate dead white men. So, but it couldn't be further from the prevailing zeitgeist or mindset of today. What was seen as freeing back then is viewed as being the exact opposition to the heart of liberty and freedom today. If the catechism were to be written, rewritten today, it might go something like this. What is your only comfort in life and death? That is, what keeps you motivated, inspired, and going every day? And the answer would be that I am my own and can be whatever and whoever I want to be, and nobody can stop me. And if you do, we will bully you for not being woke enough. Woke is the new self-righteousness, by the way. And virtue signaling is, is really... <laughs> on steroids, especially with a certain segment of our population where they like to dim I am more woke than you. It's like the Pharisee praying in the temple as he looks over at the center. Now the secularist goes, I am more woke than you. And that is my virtue signaling. That is the ultimate virtue. I am righteous. That's the world we live in. It's the world we wake up to every single day. While that does not sound inspirational and empowering, where this false identity gospel has led us, it has led to people finding their identity, the core of who they are, in things like family and gender, race, sexuality, nationality, grades or careers. These are things that are not necessarily in every way wrong in themselves. But when given such ultimate prominence in our lives, the result is disastrous. Why? Because it's idolatry. And what is the end of every idol of our heart? Death! There is no good outcome possible with looking at life this way. But also something else I have noticed while I'm on my soapbox today. It has uh, led to numerous controversies that split party lines and family ties. It has led to bitter resentment and hatred toward others and a deep dissatisfaction and disappointment with ourselves. These are the entitled ones. 
who wake up every day saying to you and everyone else, you owe me. You owe me. Now that's a problem. A big problem. Countless people today are finding identity in the absolute wrong way, an identity that is based on relationships, job performances, um, or circumstances will always come up short of giving us life and satisfaction and joy and peace that we are after. It might feel good for a little while. Most things that are rebellious do. Sin has pleasure for a season, the scriptures tell us. But it will never last. The happiness that these identities offer is always fleeting and fading. Why? Well, Tim Keller explains in the following way. To have an identity is to have something sustained that is true of you in every setting. Otherwise, there would be no you. So, the hunt for an identity is the hunt for something that is true of me in every circumstance I'm in. But we are illusory, changing beings. Our desires are in constant flux. Our emotions bounce around all over the place. If we try to base our identity on any of the aforementioned transient things, we will find ourselves, what? Constantly disoriented, lost, and unfulfilled. The identity gospel far, falls short of giving what it promises. We enter into a covenant of works with our idols, and we hope, whether they're gender, success, whatever, relationships, we enter in with the hope of entering into a covenant because we're covenantal beings. We can't escape it. At the core, we're the image of God. Uh, and so we, we worship things. We, we try to find meaning in life and connection. And so we enter into this relationship with idols and we say, Mr. Idol, if I only do what you tell me to do to have life, you will bless me. If I don't, you will curse me. But I want to tell you something. The idol never delivers the blessing. It never delivers the promise. It always leaves you with a huge sense of brokenness and idolatry. I know what I'm speaking of, because I've had idols that I have worshipped more than Jesus, that I have loved more than Jesus, that I've wanted more than Jesus. Jesus has meant nothing to me when I live that way. Furthermore, while the quest for self-expression is often billed as being inherently freeing, it really proves itself to be mercilessly demanding and oppressive. You want to talk about oppression, idolatry is oppressive. In the weariness of self, Dr. Elaine Ehrenberg explains why depression has become the most diagnosed mental disorder in the world because of increased feelings of inadequacy. That is, there is an unrealistic expectation of the individual to be successful and satisfied. And any time that is unmet, which is always, people are prone to spiral into despair. To state it simply would put too much pressure on temporary things to give us lasting and eternal satisfaction. Often depression is emotional exhaustion that comes from our idols not paying off. And the despair. Suicide is through the roof. Are you aware of that? Suicide among young people. 
read somewhere like there were 93,000 suicides last year. I'm sure COVID contributed to a lot of the hopelessness and despair. But it's not unusual for me to hear anymore of someone attempting to take their own life. It's almost frequent. And so, if that's the problem, Pastor Tim, what is the solution? Well, I'm so glad you asked. As we return to that ancient catechism in Germany, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but being body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. According to the Heidelberg Catechism, our hope, our security, fulfillment, and satisfaction in this life can never come from us, inside of us. It has to be something outside of us. This, they do come, however, from disowning ourselves and finding our all in Jesus Christ. It is, it is important that Christian identity is not something we earn, but something we're given. It's not something we find inside of ourselves. It is something that is outside of ourselves, in the person of Christ. He becomes our identity. And that is what Paul is saying in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified. Everything I am, everything that my flesh defined me to be, every credential, every positive I could say about myself was nailed to the cross in the person of Christ. Everything that I am, he became in order that he could give me everything he is. And that's what Christian living is. It is living out of Jesus. That's what it is. It's pretty simple, but in... It, it's not simplistic. It's deeper than anything you could ever think about. Incredibly deep. But I wanted to take a little closer look at sort of Paul as a case study in talking about identity to go with me, if you will, to Philippians 3. That's where I left you. And let's talk about Paul's discussion of this issue of identity. He does it in Galatians 2.20. He does it in Colossians 1.27. He does it all over the place. He talks a lot about this phrase called in Christ or in the Lord uh, or in Jesus. And so this little phrase in Christ is the foundation of everything, but I'm getting ahead of myself because I hadn't talked yet about the struggle because there is one. But it's useful to think about these things by listening to what Paul says about how he formerly viewed, formerly viewed his own identity and his relationship to righteousness and the shift that occurred because of his encounter with Jesus. And that all happens in Philippians 3. He begins to list what I would call his identity markers or badges, and he talks about, he just sort of heaps up a bunch of participles where he says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, a persecutor of the church. This is the case until we reach verse 7, where we encounter two verbs that are very important in this passage. What was gained to Paul, he has now come to consider a loss. Something has changed. Paul went from looking at his life 
through his own lenses, and now he's looking at his life through the lenses of Jesus, and he's made a radical reevaluation of who he is. It gets deeper. While at least some of the badges are true of Paul and may continue to be valid descriptions of his flesh, he can't cease being ethnically of the tribe of Benjamin. His evaluation of them has done a 180, completely changed at the most basic level. And what led to this change was Jesus himself. Paul specifies that it is because of Christ that he has come to read and interpret his own identity in a radically different way. This passage is dense with words and language of possession and ownership, and it deploys deploys excuse me this language in a way that change uh, is a change of attitude that we have already seen. In the beginning of the passage, Paul indicates that he is someone who has reasons to be confident in the flesh. The word he uses is the participle of the verb echo, which means to have. We might reasonably, if awkwardly, translate this as haver or possessor of. I am a possessor of more. Paul is the owner of reasons to be confident in the flesh, and his capital exceeds that of others. I have more. But verse 7 involves a flip of attitudes toward these things. Whatever Paul previously considered to have capital value about, albeit symbolic capital value, he now considers a capital deficit. What had been to him a gain is now a loss, even more than loss. He calls all of his confidence in the flesh and all of his righteousness as scubula. Every first-year Greek student knows what scubula is. It's human waste. That's quite a radical, uh, from, from it being the badge of honor to becoming a comment of human waste. In verse 8, Paul asserts this further by using that same original language word and making it a compound particle, hyper-having, which is translated the surpassing worth. But it's really, literally translated, hyper-having. We can now see more of the contrast that he makes. Paul used to consider himself to have more than others, but now he sees all of that perceived capital in relation to the hyper-having of Jesus. The knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And so, because of Christ that Paul now considers his gains to be losses, and he has a knowledge of Christ that has grasped him. He speaks of wanting to lay hold of Christ, but then realizes that Christ has already laid hold of him. So what am I getting at in this passage? What am I trying to emphasize in this passage? Because I could go on and on on it, and we only have so much attention span. But Paul is driving here to get us to see that what he found by being united to Christ and receiving all of who Jesus Christ is totally redefined and reworked, shall I say reimagined, I dare not. I hate that word. 
I absolutely hate that word. You shouldn't imagine in the first place. You know what I mean? It's a waste of time. But Paul was completely redefined in terms of his identity. His in Christness became who he really was and is and will be and is his only hope that he is in Christ. He is united to him. Now that sounds sort of uh, mystical for some people and it sounds rather uh, mysterious to other people. But the concreteness of it happens as the Holy Spirit continues to do his work in us. Union with Christ is such a huge concept in Scripture. Shall I tell you it's mentioned 160 times about believers in the New Testament? 160 times? That's a lot by anyone's calculation and estimation. John Murray, longtime professor at Westminster Seminary, had to say about the doctrine of union with Christ, nothing is more central or basic than union and communion with Christ. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, not only in its application, but also in its once-for-all accomplishment on the finished work of Christ. Calvin says the doctrine deserves the highest degree of importance. John Owen said that union of Christ is the measure of all spiritual enjoyments and expectations. Puritan Thomas Goodwin writes that being in Christ and united to him is the fundamental constitution of a Christian. This is a groundbreaking concept. People are always searching for a center in Paul's theology. And many have argued that the doctrine of justification by faith alone through grace alone uh, in Christ alone is the meta doctrine of Paul. It is the ultimate rubric under which everything else falls. I don't agree with that. I think it's union with Christ. I think union with Christ is everything. So let's talk a little bit more about that so you can wrap your head around it with me. To, begin, to be clear, it's a beautiful doctrine. And it teaches to us that Christ is truly all. And when we are in Him, we have all things. Apart from Jesus, we are nothing. We have nothing. But in Christ, we are filled with the very fullness of God. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And Paul says that he had no greater desire to know Christ and to be found in Him. The sum and substance for Paul is union with Christ. But to be clear, union with Christ does not mean we become Christ. It's not a form of declaration where we slowly turn into gods or become one with the divine essence. That's mysticism, not Christian faith. Nor are we literally or physically united to him as though we become conjoined twins at the hip, attached at the hip. The biblical conception of union is variegated and manifold but ultimately comes down to this it is a spiritual union wrought through the power of the Holy Spirit after all Jesus is now ascended bodily present sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven we right now are not in heaven so how could it be said in any way that we are united to him given where he is it must be through a mysterious working of the Spirit. By faith, the Holy Spirit brings us into union with Jesus that is personal, 
real, vital, and life-giving and unbreakable. A union that can span even the distance between heaven and earth. John Owen explains how the whole of union hangs on the work of the Spirit of Christ when he says two men cannot be one because they have two souls. No more could we be one with Christ were it not the same Spirit in Him that is in us. It is the Holy Spirit who enables us to be one with Christ. And it should be noted that our union with Christ doesn't erase our individuality. Take John, take Paul, take the apostles. These two men understood the importance of union with Christ. Both were united to Christ, yet each had different callings, different personalities, styles of writing. Furthermore, the doctrine of union with Christ does not render those things we often identify ourselves by, let's say in a secondary way, family, career, gender, sexuality, unimportant or meaningless. No, far from it. Rather, our identity in Christ is the fundamental identity that claims every other identity we have. And it is a fundamental identity that helps become the lens through which we identify or our identity becomes accountable before Him. There is no part of human identity that goes untouched by union with Christ. And so Christ becomes the lens and the person through whom we evaluate every one of these other categories we have. That's when we're talking about the core. We're talking about the heart of something. We're talking about the essence of something, the subsistence of something. It's our being in union with Christ, and that is gospel. And that gospel is to shape us. And it makes us very different kind of people because once you understand it's all Christ and none of me, you have no reason to boast. You have no reason to be a stinking self-righteous person. You don't have to compete and vie and run over people to get what you want. And you don't have to accomplish everything in the world to matter. If you're in Christ, that is enough. It's more than enough. It is everything you need. And it defines who you are. So, our union with Christ never erases our individuality. The issue is not having a gender identity per se. The issue is having a gender identity that the Lord does not recognize as virtuous. You get a whole new set of standards. And you go back and you begin to open the Bible and you begin to read in Genesis and you begin to see how God constructed the world and you're no longer autonomously looking at that and shaping it to work for you, but rather you come to the Bible with a submissive, teachable attitude and you let the Bible define for you what your ethics are. The transcendent ethic. Not socially constructed reality. Truth from God. That's what we have in the Bible. And so that is what our identity is. Now the struggle <laughs> is never over. How hard it is to live knowing that my identity is who I am in Jesus. Why? Because the flesh is still with me. The world is the context in which I live.
And the devil is constantly challenging those evaluations. And so even for the believer, you know, Paul passively received Christ. He got passive righteousness from Jesus. It's outside of him. It's something someone else did. It's alien. But that didn't make Paul passive. That understanding made him pursue righteousness with a zeal that he used to persecute the church with. Same word. Same word. Decoco. He used to pursue persecuting Christians with all of his heart because that's what he thought his identity was and the right thing to do to persecute the church. Once he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, his whole identity changed, and then he understood that righteousness is not something he creates. It's not something he accomplishes. It's not something he does. It is something Christ has done for him. It is given to him as a gift, and it energized him to completely do a 180 and become the one who planted and built churches as we saw all through the book of Acts because he finally found out who he was and that's who you are too if you are in Christ if you are organically united to him as the vine is Jesus to the branch you will be fruitful and that fruit will remain John tells us so there's your reset on Christian identity. I know it didn't answer all your questions, but understand that the foundation of who you are, these are important questions. You know, where did I come from? Who am I? What am I doing here? What is my purpose? How do I know whether I'm fulfilling it? What is life like when I die? Is there any life after I die? You know, if you come from nothing, you die and you go to nothing, then have the courage to admit that in between is nothing. Okay? But if you are a creature made in the image of God who is a glorious ruin, though fallen, you still retain vestiges of the image of God. When Christ Jesus saves you, all of a sudden you begin to see that His renewal project in you is because you're united to Him and He is making you over into his moral image he's the one that does it and it's painful because we're warped in so many different ways it's painful but the end result is going to be glorious it's going to be glorious our only hope the only hope of any creature is being in Christ let us pray Father, we thank you today for your word and how it counters, sort of counterpunches our culture. Because our culture is blinded and lost, and our hearts are broken over the lostness and the desperation and the sense of inadequacy and despair. Our hearts are broken over that. We do not stand and judge people who are struggling. That is not our calling. Our calling is to take them the gospel. And our calling is to live out the implications of the gospel in their presence and with them. Now, Lord, give us a heart to do so. Now, Lord, as we continue to worship, may we give as those who are in Christ. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.